welcome to episode one of The Cast of Caw, a brand new podcast about Stephen King's Dark Tower series, where we're going to talk a little bit, a lot about the books and a little bit about the upcoming movies. Joining me as the the other half of this particular quartet, see, already, already we're, we're flowing with Dark Tower lingo, uh, is the one and only DJ. Yes, I am here. Uh, surprisingly, Rachel and I, normally we don't jump up and down saying that we have something uh, interesting in common because we're very different people. But when I mentioned this book series to her, she was very excited. And uh, <laughs> that brought us together for this cast. Uh, each each week or each episode, uh, I should say week, because these will happen whenever they happen. Let it flow naturally. Uh, but we'll try to cover uh, about 10 or so chapters per episode, uh, not really spoiling advanced parts of the book, but covering little bits and pieces uh, in order so that the book can unravel for you with the podcast. So if you're reading the book, you can sort of have some uh, assignments to keep up. Uh, so Rachel, why did you want to do this cast? Well, I mean, this is something you and I have been talking about forever. We originally talked about doing it as because we co-host on the Splattercast together as well. Um, we talked about doing like a, a Dark Tower month and like really get digging into the books. And it just kind of never happened because no you one know, else was excited about it except for us. No, we're the hugest nerds and no one else cared. And also it's a lot of work. And that's sort of like not really the Splattercast vibe, which I appreciate. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I am completely sober right now and drinking only water so I can intelligently express my opinions. Right. So we can get our sober geek on. I'm currently drinking coffee and getting, so I'm like, uh, I'm getting all hopped up on caffeine, but I appreciate your sobriety. <laughs> so, so as you said, we're going to do like basically kind of like a book club and we're going to go through this way we can, if we were to do it on Splattercast, I think we'd have to like really just keep it surface level. And now we can go like full Definitely. geek with this. We can like dig in. So we're going to actually go through both of the, it's a reread for both of us. So we're going to go book club style through the books, geek out, and then talk a little bit of probably about the movies since the movie is coming out next year, which is kind of another reason why we got this started was it was kind of the perfect timing with having a movie on the horizon. It was just like that little extra bit of motivation we needed to get off our asses and finally do something we were talking about for years. Because I didn't even know there was a movie on the horizon. <laughs> in fact, um, I am completely new to any of the characters playing in the movie. So all that portion will be in Rachel's lap, but I, I do think it'll be fun to, uh, to find out <laughs> what's going to be going on <laughs> with the movie uh, live on the air. So it, it's, uh, it, it's a fun experience. Now, the Dark Tower series, uh, I'll start right out of the gate. For me, it was something I just kind of stumbled upon uh, accidentally. Uh, it wasn't really something I was like, oh man, I've always wanted to read that. It was more like I, I was surfing around on Audible and then you know somebody bought me a book and I ended up reading a little bit of it and then getting the Audible version and listening to it and then going back and forth. And then ironically, I didn't really fall in love with the book as much as I fell in love with the, the audio reader of the book. Oh. And so I loved it so much. I loved his his voice and the way he portrayed the characters that that's actually what got me going on this about six years ago, seven years ago. Was it Frank Mueller or was it George Gu Guidel? I think George uh, – is it Gurdo? 
Goodell, something Goodell, like that. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the more recent reader. Okay. Yeah, and uh, his voice is is really deep and interesting, and it's just a joy to listen to him. And I don't know how many audiobooks you listen to, Rachel, but have you ever fallen into that category where, like, uh, John Lee is a great example. If you ever listen to anything John Lee reads. Mm, I don't know. Probably. I mean, possibly. He has a super deep and sultry voice, and he's known for reading Mm. really, really, really long books. And uh, and his voice, like, because of his voice, sometimes a book will be mediocre. I won't even like it. And I'll dive in simply because John Lee – is reading it. It's the same with the. Um, so you're uh, all about the base. That's yeah, what I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, well, Marster, uh, is it Tim Marster or John Marster? The guy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Oh, James Marsters. James yes. Marsters. He reads the Dresden series. Mm-hmm. And if you. Okay. You listen to that, like he perfectly portrays yeah. the character of Dresden throughout the entire series. And it, it goes from like being an. You know, the first two books are kind of slogs. They're not very good. But because he's reading them, <laughs> they become great. And my wife, I, I bought her the books to let her read the first one. She's like, this is awful. Why would I read this crap? I'm like, you got to keep going. And, like, she gets to three, and then, like, all of a sudden, it's you know, it's good stuff. But that's the same thing for this. Now, what about you, Rachel? How did you get into this book? Well, I, I read the books originally – um, at least the first few, because, you know, the second ones or the last few books came out quite a bit later. Uh, I was really, really into horror novels as like a, I don't know, like a 10 year old. I read a bunch of like Dean Koops because they were like very sexy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then eventually I graduated from to Stephen King and just sort of like voraciously read through them. And for some reason, I held off on the Dark Tower for a long time because I think because it was like a Western and that wasn't necessarily my jam. But about by about the time I turned about 15, I had read like everything else. So I started them and then just got completely sucked into them and obsessed with them. And I've been super obsessed with them ever since. They, I read, I actually read the book versions of the first, I want to say four books. Yeah, through uh, Wizard and Glass. And then by the time the last three came out, I was, I had switched over to audiobooks and some of them were Frank Miller or Mueller. And then at the end it was George Goodell because he had like a stroke or something. Oh. Um, and I yeah, he is a great, you read all of them after a while. Cause I-, I think they've gone back. Well, I know that there's a revised version of the gunslinger, which by the way is the one that we're going to be doing where exactly. Stephen King went back through and made some, he like got rid of some of the anachronisms because like there are like little things that don't, make sense in later books because they like the scarcity of paper is something that he had to fix in this book i guess because it later on they talk about it and so it was like a you know a Maybe continuity I error. One because they do mention scarcity of paper a few times no, no, no. in the original book they don't have scarcity oh, of paper okay, so he okay. went back and fixed that and added that in and i also think there's a little thing in this very opening section about um him feeling dizzy that is important later on. We won't spoil it, but it's something to take note of when you're listening to this that I uh, I think probably was an addition. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, this has been a part of my life for a really, really long time. And I just am super excited to have an excuse to revisit, revisit these things. I was actually a Tolkien kid. And oh. uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, everything Douglas Adams 
ever wrote as a, a younger person. So I didn't actually start getting into stuff like Thinner and Tommy Knockers and some of mm-hmm. the other uh, classic Stephen King books until I was an older person. And I read most of those, but uh, uh, when I got to this, it was just kind of, I almost thought it was going to be throwaway filler for work. And then it ended up being something no. I really loved. Yeah. I mean, I do love a fantasy epic. Anyone who listens to the our other shows knows I'm a huge Game of Thrones nerd. And this is kind of another another reason I'm excited to do this is I need something to get me through the long winter <laughs> till next season. <laughs> All right, let's so, take a second and talk about our uh, spoiler policy here. Yes. Before we jump in, um, we'll try not to spoil anything that happens beyond the chapters that we're covering uh, during the coverage of the chapters that we've read so far. However... If we do spoil anything by talking about the movie or any of the other upcoming uh, bits for social media or what have you, uh, Rachel will we'll mention the spoiler zone. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm going to throw up. We're going to go through the book, the book um, club section. And then after that, uh, we'll talk about connections to other things in the Stephen King universe, which shouldn't be spoilery. But there is at the end of the show, we're going to close out with information about the upcoming movies, just sort of like talking about the latest headlines when there is information to talk about. And that section will have spoilers, but I'll, I'll do a quick reminder before we dig into it that it's going to be spoiler heavy. All right. Sounds good. Well, are you ready to uh, start this off? I'm so ready. Let's do this. Would you mind handling the synopsis? Absolutely. So (laughs) the book opens up with the gunslinger basically in uh, sort of an empty, vast wasteland type of area that sort of – it's depressing and you find out that he's – He's just sort of wandering, and he's following the man in black. Uh, The man in black has continued to be ahead of him as he trails him and sort of dogs him with different uh, little symbols, leaves fires and so on ahead of him. And he's chasing him down across this area. He comes across a few different characters and a few different huts and villages um, there's an interesting actually spot and this is diving a little bit deep, but, uh, he digs through one of the campfires and he looks for any signs of, of food and finds a crusty piece of bacon. And then there's a little <laughs> yeah. diatribe about how, uh, the man in black is taunting him. And then <laughs> the man in black, you, you start to feel as they describe him as he's walking through these fields is a character who doesn't really. Anyway, he's traveling through this area. He's got his uh, mule with him. And at some point, as he's he's digging his bacon out of the dirt, he starts to wonder, like, he's not found any feces. He's not found any <laughs> water bags. Uh, he mentions that he's left three water bags in his – or four water bags in his wake as he's traveling because, you know, he can't afford to carry more stuff with him. And it sort of starts to begin to paint the picture of the man in black – as not just a person that he's chasing, a fellow right. gunslinger, but somebody of a higher, maybe mystical order. Yeah, or, someone not quite human. Exactly. Yeah. And you start to, at first, you sort of feel like you're just in a regular Western environment. The descriptions and so on feel uh, very Clint Eastwoody. But then <laughs> as he moves forward, you start to get the first weird signs of events going on you'll get a guy that has a crow for a head and the, some mystics yeah. 
floating about. And they just kind of toss those out there um, casual Friday like. So mm-hmm. it's not as though they ever even focus on them. They just vaguely mention them and continue to move forward. He's like, yeah, I walked by this hut and then I walked by a guy with a crow for a head. And they vaguely mention some uh, religious people that are travelers that uh, meander through the world visiting different places. What is it? The followers of Manny or yeah, Manny? The, the followers of Manny. That's correct. <laughs> and, and finally, after kind of using this first chapter or two to, to – build up the environment that he's hanging out in. And the speech is really important in this too. Uh, the monologue that happens inside of our character's head is, is introducing you to the terminology and yeah. uh, the uh, vocabulary used in that particular dialect. And they call it the high speech. Yeah. So you you'll get to familiarize yourself with that. But finally, after going through all of this description and kind of building up, they introduce you to a Mr. Brown and his crow Zoltan. Uh, you find Mr. Brown working in his cornfield, and Mr. Brown doesn't use the high speech. He uses a, a more belligerent speech and. He tells the gunslinger that uh, he can offer him up some food, but he's going to have to chip in for the beans and that there's no meat to speak of. And in the meantime, Zoltan, they kind of use him as almost comic relief. I don't know, Rachel, when you listen to this, did you chuckle uh, when Zoltan threw in the like the beans, beans, musical fruit? Yeah, I mean, it's very like Stephen King humor, you know, And but I, I kind of liked it's the first it's like the first time we get the um, kind of crossover of our world, like things from our world that have seeped into the world building that he's done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely had like a little giggle and, and was just kind of like, hmm, interesting, interesting. I know that. I know that rhyme. So the gunslinger and his mule roll into camp uh, at this guy's home and you kind of get the impression uh, as they describe Zoltan and the – uh, Mr. Brown character uh, interaction that maybe it's not as you first perceive that uh, Mr. Brown is actually maybe slave to the crow or maybe that the crow is in charge of Mr. Brown. And you think of him, you know, at first as a normal person, but he sits down at camp and he tells him to fill up his water bags in the in the well and that whole time, he starts to go from just a regular person to something that seems like a little bit more devious. And the gunslinger begins to ask him, okay, well, you know, uh, the man in black was ahead of me. What did he say? Well, he didn't really say anything. You know, he just uh, shook a rabbit or pre-skinned out of his hat and dropped it on the ground for us to eat, you know. And uh, it's descriptions like, you know, okay, well, if this guy doesn't want to talk. I'm just going to sit here, eat my free rabbit and hang out. And the gunslinger sitting there is brooding, and Mr. Brown finally uh, breaks the subject. You want to talk, don't you, fella? And uh, the gunslinger doesn't really say anything. He says, okay, I'll ask you what happened in Tall, because he mentions Tall earlier on. And then immediately from there, we transition to a flashback of the town tall. Now, I'm going to throw this over to you, Rachel, because this is where it goes from just a Western to almost like a gunslinger battle and yeah. uh, an epic. 
Well, Tola is sort of this dying town full of unfriendly people. When he gets there, there's some some kids that give him dirty looks and and are just generally really unfriendly to outsiders. Um, so he heads over to the local honky tonk, a place called Shebs, where he grabs a few burgers, and we learn some more. There's some more world building, and that the barmaid alley tells tells him like you know it's expensive meat because it's threaded which apparently means i'm guessing like not mutated food um so you start to get a sense that this world is sort of like it's not just this area but it's like a world that's in decay or like as they would describe it a world that had moved on while he's there he's approached by this guy who's like addicted to chewing devil grass which apparently gives you bad dreams and um well they almost uh, describe it as a, a drug yeah. Um, there's a, at some point when they're describing the campfires that the men in black leaves, they say that they're the only thing to burn is the devil grass and that if you breathe it in, uh, or look into it, it can make you go mad. And right. uh, the description, uh, actually I'm, you go ahead, Rachel, I'm stomping on you. No, um, no, no, like, stomp away, stomp uh, away. Go ahead. So they, as they're talking about the, the character in the devil grass, one of the things they mention is that. Um, they kind of do this uh, quick uh, overview of what happened to him. And he started out as a uh, a sewage removal worker. Like he was basically like uh, cleaning toilets and doing that sort of thing. And then he started smoking a little bit of the grass now and again. And like pretty soon he was smoking it all the time. And then before long he wasn't working anymore and he was chewing the grass and yeah. then the kids start following him around, throwing rocks at him, and he's chewing the grass so much that he's become this almost zombie drug addict of some kind. Is, is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like almost like uh, chewing coca leaves, except for that it has all these weird, like hallucinogenic and like mystical properties to it. It's it's a really, uh, I mean, it's an interesting concept that this this sort of drug grows freely throughout uh pretty much the entire world and uh you know tall is just another town that's been infected by it and yeah to me maybe that says something about what stephen king was trying to to describe as a world in decay i mean what's the worst thing that you could do to a society but medicate everybody to the points where they're just uh walking imbeciles barely able to accomplish anything and that it's like the most common sort of thing that's there. Like there isn't a lot of food, there isn't a lot of water, but there's devil grass. Well, and there's even like uh, – now let's go back to the kids following him into town. Some yeah. of the insults that they're they're uh, uh, calling out to him are like weed eater, which you know, <laughs> right. is like basically you're a person who eats the grass. And um, so he walks into town. He meets these kids and he asks them where to go. He finds the diner, gets to the diner, and meets who? Nort. Who? Well, he meets first. He meets Allie, the the barkeep, who is like kind of a sad, scarred up old lady, um, who once was beautiful, and uh, she serves him food. And while he's there, this guy that we talked about who was addicted to the, um, the devil grass, Nort speaks to Roland, but he speaks to him in the high speech, which is something we mentioned Brown does not do. It's really uncommon. In fact, he hasn't heard the high speech spoken. And I don't even know how long I'm guessing since he left his like now, 
they haven't really they don't really specify, but that it's been a really long time. All right, at this point, are we able to actually put a, a definite age or you know uh, lifespan on the gunslinger? I mean, I get the sense that he's like kind of a weathered guy, like in you know in a you know maybe middle aged, but in a world that's this harsh, is kind of old. Well, some you know of these I mean? characters, uh, you know, and uh, stop in the synopsis for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes they describe him as being, you know, it makes you feel like he's ancient, like he's been alive for, you know, millennia, you know, or hundreds of yeah. years. But then sometimes the descriptions make it seem like it's only maybe 50 years back or 60 years back or 40 years back. And it's, it's hard to, to really pin down how long the gunslinger has really been chasing the man in black. Well, it says that he's been chasing him for two months. So he's been on his trail for two months, but we don't know. I don't know that 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 tells us how long he's been alive, but yeah, he does seem to be at the very least a very old soul or someone who's like a remnant of a time that has passed. But yeah, you're right. He does have a sense. Like there is sort of an agelessness about him. So picking up where we left off, Rachel, so he meets Alice, <laughs> and Alice is the barkeep. As you mentioned, she's a, a weathered lady, and he pays or he offers to pay for uh, food food and uh, a drink. And it kind of described to me, like, what happens there. Because at this point, like, they really just dive into the poverty of the town. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like it's part poverty, but also part just sort of, like, greediness of this town um everybody that he meets he offers to pay them with these gold coins um and the first thing they say to him is we don't have change for that and you get the sense that a they don't have change for that but also there is there is um a very greedy look in everyone's eyes when they see this gold so we move on from there he's he's in the bar uh you kind of get a little bit of the story of the bar you get the a musician that's always working the bar. And Sheb. Sheb. And, and you kind of, they really spend a lot of time describing Alice and like her history and how she interacts with the gunslinger. And it, am I wrong in saying that, is this the point where she tries to hook up with him? Yeah. I mean, she, he mentions the man in black and she goes from being hostile to being like weirdly horny. Yeah. And, uh, And, you know, she gets that look. She gives him the look, right? Like, uh, and I think from here, they basically head back to her room and hook up, right? Yeah, I think the suggestion here is that uh, I'll give you the information you want, but uh, you're going to have to. pro quo. Yeah, you're going to have to spend the (laughs) night with me. And this. It's it's rough, man. Like, he talks about how it's going to be dark in the room. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a point where uh, describing Alice, he's like, uh, she covered her face up to cry, and her maidenness came back to her Oof. for a moment because you know he could no longer see her face, and and then there's descriptions like uh, her lean, gristled skin uh, keeps the sags from showing in most places, oh, and you it's know, rough man. And then she, and as they're describing the scene too, like the lights because she goes to put out all the lights and they're describing these greasy candles that are leaving you know gunk on the walls and stains on the ceiling and the the, the lights almost this yellowing decaying light and he takes yeah. her up to bed and beds her and gets some information and then the morning comes and what happens Rachel 
Well, they, he, she tells him the story of when the man in black had come through a few weeks previously. And it turns out that when he showed up, Nort, the devil grass addict that we met earlier, was actually dead. He had died outside the bar. And so the man in black comes in and says, like, let me show you a trick. And he r- ends up raising Nort from the dead. And so they consider Nort to be touched by God. But while he does it, everybody sort of goes into this frenzy and like Allie starts like spontaneously masturbating in the, in the, in the bar. And, and you know, it's kind of this amazing thing that happens, but as the, the man in black leaves, he leaves, uh, he leaves, we find out his name is Walter O'Dim, and he's left a note via Nort to Allie that says basically that he remembers that that uh, Nort doesn't remember anything about his time being dead. However, if you say the word 19 to him, it'll unlock his memories and he'll be able to remember everything. Um, but if you know, you'll go mad and basically taunts her in this message like reiterating that like you don't want to say 19 but you will you'll try not to but you will and uh it's something that sort of since that time that that the black man in black has left has haunted her and is something that's like this growing tension where she doesn't know how long she can hold out before she says 19 to him and she's almost done it a couple times to the point where she's like writing it in water on the bar when she sees him (laughs) and it's just it's this uncontrollable urge that's like building yes the number is 19 Yes, you very important it. number in, in Midworld. We need to remember number 19. Anytime it comes up, something important is happening. Now, during the resurrection of Nort, uh, there's a couple of interesting things that go on. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the masturbation bit, which is yes. kind of funny. Uh, but there, there's also <laughs> – the as the man in black is – they almost describe it as doing somersaults. And flips and you know yeah. jumps over the body. Uh, Nord is, is right. Yeah, is spewing yeah. out, and, and the description in this is really good. It, they, they say uh, the the black came through his teeth like a teeth like a sewer grate, and you just imagine like the goo and stuff oozing out of his mouth, and then him coughing up chunks. And one of the key points here is he slaps the belly of an older woman. That was heavy set named Sylvia. And I didn't get that the first time I had gone through this. And I was like, hmm. well, that's a weird reference. And I'm not going to spoil anything. I, I did end up going a little bit ahead because, you know, I like this book. But, um, <laughs> uh, but it's I. It's not the last we're going to see of Sylvia. Yeah, but I, I went back and listened to it again. And sure enough, uh, you know, he slaps her in the belly and she starts crying. And runs away, and this is during the time where uh, Nort is is starting to spasm, and this is during his wake, so everybody, you know, is is really freaked out. Well, the next day, no one comes back to the bar except for the one guy, and for some reason, that name is escaping me. Do you remember Rachel? Um, is it Shep? Or no, it's someone else. You're it's, right. It's another guy. It's an ancillary character, not really. Very important, but he basically didn't know about it. And Nort's now that he's back alive again. Uh, the f- the first thing they do is they almost they generate this interaction between Alice and Nort, where Nort's like he brought me back to life, and he could have made me free of my sickness, which is his addiction right. to the devil weed, but he didn't. 
And Nort's like, I don't want to be ungrateful. I'm glad I'm alive again. But why didn't he make me all the way better and just instead of partially better? And it, it's a really interesting uh, it's almost like the the old uh, genie trick where they you know they grant your wish, but while granting your wish, they ruin your life in some other manner that you weren't expecting, and that right. feels like Nort's entire r- resurrection and uh, the scene in general. Yeah, it's like, like he could be a savior, but he's actually it's actually like a cruel trick that he plays on Nort to bring him back and like let him just be totally tortured by his own demons. Exactly, and and that. Uh, I feel like going forward, we're going to get that as a continuing um, uh, event for each of the people that the the man in black comes in contact with. So we've got Nord alive. Uh, The bar is starting to pick back up again. People are finally starting to show back up. And in the meantime, now that he's set up his lodging, he's got his mule and he wanders off to to find someone to take care of his mule, right? Well, there is skip something. There's one thing we should talk about. It's really brief, but um, it's something that's going to be important in later books. He decides to stay, even though he knows it's kind of a trap that the man in black has left for him. He decides to stay in toll for a few more days and, you know, carries on this relationship with Allie, the bartender. Right. Yeah. And uh, one one morning. Uh, Sheb, the owner of the Honky Tonk and the musician, busts in and tries to kill Roland in like a fit of rage. And uh, it's then that Roland, who previously had noted that Sheb seemed familiar to him, makes a connection of how he knew him. He he knew him from his past when he was like a young man in a town called Mages, uh, when there was some sort of event that had to do with Susan Delgado. And you get the sense that it's some sort of tragic event from his childhood. And that this guy was very much, um, at least like a, a, a contributor to the problem. Yeah. Like he was complicit at the very least. And, you know, Roland basically warns him like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go, but I know what you did. Um, and, for the purpose of this book, it's not that important, but it is, it does, it's a foreshadowing for something that's going to happen in a later book. So it's worthy of note. So I forgot about, I forgot about the order here. I messed that up. I'm sorry. No uh, I thought, uh, didn't he go to the stable and house the mule? And then uh, they do like the whole, she played violin and she uh, was silhouetted in the, Maybe. (laughs) I'm doing this for memory, so I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) So we may have jumped past it. I'll throw it in there really quick to introduce the stable owner. Uh, What was his name again? Uh, His name is... I want to say it's like Kenley or something like that. Yes, it's Kennerly. Kennerly. So this Kennerly guy, they introduce him as he's he's making his uh, arrangements to stay in the town for a little while. He's kind of enjoying his time with with Alice and he needs someone to take care of his mule. And this is the, actually the first introduction of him paying with gold. He throws the coin down or the guy at first is basically a jerk to him. It says, you know, you know, what do you want? Get out of here. I don't need you. And so the gunslinger flips the coin, a gold coin onto the ground. And when the guy hears it, he says, I can't make change for that. You know, there's the same slang that you, know, that you get from all the rest of the town. They're like basically saying, I'm going to keep whatever isn't, you know, owed to me because there's no way I could possibly generate uh, a return for you for that. And the guy's mouthy about taking care of his mule. He's like a little bit slithery and snaky and, and feels just kind of gross. 
And, yeah. And uh, he asked the gunslinger asks him to uh, clean up his mule, freshen him up, you know, put uh, put some powder on him or whatever they do. Oil him up. Oil him up. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not sure I understand. I'm not a horse owner, so I don't know that I understand the whole oiling it up. But he says at the end, like, I want to make sure I smell it on him, you know, <laughs> when I come back. And the guy's like, you know, I say please and I, you say thank you, mister, you know, and like it, it, the interaction is just so strange. And so you kind of forget about that for a while. And then they spend some time talking about his relationship with Alice and like Nort and the musician and the musician's love for Alice and how Alice was his. And then we come back to the stable owner as he tries to investigate what the men in black was up to in the town. Mm-hmm. So from there, tell me about his next interaction with the stable owner. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's not just a stable owner, but he, uh, it turns out this guy Kinnerly has a whole bunch of daughters, including a very horny one at the at the water pump who... Reads like Roland with a, by squeezing like her nipples, yeah. which even in my like most forward and flirty days, that's some advanced <laughs> shit. <laughs> but what I think is actually the most interesting scene, a part of the scene, is just sort of the descriptions of Kinnerly and the way that he sort of vacillates between hostility and just sort of this slimy, like, um, like uh, almost contempt for like uh, anybody that is doing better than him or anybody that has like a higher status, maybe. Yeah, I think there's yeah, there's I don't know exactly what the origin of his feelings are, but there is this sort of like he'll like kind of kiss up to him a little bit and and be sort of accommodating and like a slimy sort of way. But he just can't quite seem to like cover up the like underlying hostility and hatred towards him and when they do part ways um roland talks about how if he were to turn around he'd act he 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 knows he would actually see like an unguarded emotion on this guy's face because he's just like boiling with this undercurrent of hatred well and one of the descriptions that kind of uh, really paints this guy well is he mentioned the the uh, stable owner mentions his relationship with Alice and he describes it by making a crude circle with one finger and then jamming his finger in and out of that crude circle <laughs> over and over again inappropriately while like looking at the gunslinger going, huh? 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 And- I love that Roland just shuts his ass down too. Like, uh, uh, you know, he's just not fucking having it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's really interesting and it gets you to like kind of understand the characters in this town and they're, they're all beaten down. They're sort of like looking for any signs of hope. And they're also, you know, not good people. Is that the feeling you get? Yeah, they're not, a, you know, like they're not a salt of the earth good people that like, well, they're very suspicious and hardened and kind of just as nasty and uh, as the, as the, you know, area that they live in, like they're very much a product of that. It is Seoul is not a good place, and I. But I, there's a part of me that wonders how much of that is just ingrained in these people because of the harshness of the landscape, and how much of it is sort of the aftermath of having the man in black come through there and like his corrupting force on the town. I don't know that they ever really talk about that, but I think it's it's kind of worth noting. You remember you know, that like, uh, Clint Eastwood movie where they paint the town red? Yes. Uh, which one is that? Oh, it's escaping he me. Makes, like, he makes like the, the dwarf, uh, the town mayor. Um, yeah, exactly. 
Oh, High Plains Drifter. High Plains Drifter. This almost, like, the way this town is described almost feels like High Plains Drifter, where, you know, the guy comes in. That's a great And he, he fixes stuff, but by fixing stuff, he actually ends up not fixing stuff or making things like <laughs> worse or at least, you know, your fix is not the solution that you needed. And and that's the feeling I get. Like you, if you go back and watch High Plains Drifter and then you, you read this section about the town, it's just – it really like they go hand in hand with each other and it's it's really interesting to think about that as a good contrast between the two. Now, Well, yeah, the townspeople in High Plains Drifter are also like cowardly or, you know, just kind of terrible. Yeah. And so when things don't go super well for them in the movie, you don't really have that sympathy. And I think Toll is the same way. That is an excellent comparison. Now, and it made me want to go back and rewatch that movie. I know, that's a good movie. <laughs> I used to watch that as a kid on like USA because it did be up, you know, at like 10 oh, o'clock at night all the time. Uh, so one last thing I wanted to point out before we leave the synopsis section of yeah. this is in in his questions and inquiries, he quizzes Alice about uh, there's a desert at the edge of Tall from what we find out. And he quizzes Alice about what's on the other side of the desert. And then he quizzes the people in the bar about that and he finally asked the innkeeper and other than speculation about possibly an ocean possibly the end of the world possibly a mountain range we don't really get an answer specifically there's rumors of a speaking ring as well yeah a speaking ring and you know at this point you're still kind of learning the jargon and speaking ring doesn't really mean a lot yeah to you yeah Yeah. I mean, and it kind of, it sort of, the section ends with that, um, with the question of what, what lies beyond this desert, um, which is kind of a cool place to leave off. But I'm glad that you brought up the speaking ring thing, because one of the sort of general topics I wanted to talk about this first section is the way that Stephen King chose to do world building. There is so little like exposition about what each thing means thing. He just throws you in the world and trusts you as a reader to pick it up from context over a period of time. Yeah. Like speaking ring or we, you talked about the bird man at the beginning of the book where, where he, there's a guy who has a bird's head or an animal's head. He refers to it as a tahine. Like, and he just expects you to know what that means. I know what it means because I immediately was like, what the fuck is a tahine and Googled it. But (laughs) the point is he, he just sort of throws you into the world where he uses all of this sort of lingo, like thank you, sigh. And, um, you know, I say, please, you say thank you. You know, just like it's words that you can recognize the meaning, but they're, off-putting from what you would normally use is a greeting and and, and some of the uh, interactions between him and the character using the high speech and then even uh, the crude speech that you get from the locals like that's slang that is new to me and you know not really familiar and I, n- next ch- uh, 10 chapters i'm going to actually start writing some of this slang down so we can maybe <laughs> have like a slang section and like identify what it means when it's something weird or wacky well, I like how he takes little pieces of stuff that we do understand and does like a mashup with this world. So like they'll talk about, you know, the followers of Manny and then they'll talk about the followers of Jesus. So you get like, you know, it's some sort of they're like different cults or whatever, but it, it's there's a little hint of familiar stuff in there, uh, but with sort of like a mid world twist that I always 
think is really interesting. Now, the descriptions of followers of Jesus, that's one point I wanted to touch on. Uh, mm-hmm. They mention Jesus, but they don't mention Jesus in a manner that you would normally consider. And it, does, <laughs> does that to you almost feel like they're describing Satan instead of Jesus? Cause that's I don't know if hmm. I picked that up incorrectly, but uh, a lot of times they're like, oh yeah, they're uh, they're in ruins because they're the follower of you know uh, Jesus, and then like it kind of makes them sound like they're either not doing things right or things are going weird for them or they're just like a, a mess. My feeling I hadn't thought about it like that, and I definitely am going to pay closer attention. The way that I interpreted it. What's more, and it comes to this back to this idea of like a world in decay that is quote unquote moved on, is that when it's compared to the followers of Manny, like it's almost put on the same level in terms of like it's just another mythology. In the same way that we talk about like ancient religions that have kind of fallen out of favor, there are still some people that, you know, maybe there are some, so like, you know, Zoroastrianism, people follow Zoroastrianism, but like, it's not necessarily a mainstream religion anymore. And it's something that we feel like as a culture we've aged out of. And I kind of got the sense that it was the same thing with the followers of Jesus. Like there are still some scattered followers of it, but it's no longer a major religion. It's just another sort of cult in this world. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to have to focus a little bit more on that as well. Cause I, I keep like wanting to attach these cults and these uh, different groups to to other things. And maybe that's me associating stuff with uh, other Stephen King. Did you ever read um, the talisman? No, uh, I've only gone as far as like the stand and, you know, some of the single read books that Stephen King's written. You, once we're done with, with, uh, Dark Tower, because you, you've got your reading covered. You should really check out the Talisman, which is another. It has much. It has a similar feel to this, and that it's much more fantasy driven. And there is some like crossover because it's like you know multiple worlds and stuff like that. But there is a religion, like religion is a, a part of it, and it's again another sort of adaptation, I think, of Christianity, where instead of the good, you know, the Bible is often referred to as the good book. In that, it's called like the Book of Good Farming. <laughs> and so there, yeah. So like, this is something Stephen King repeatedly does, where he sort of plays with religion, but puts like a new, like a new universe spin on it. Like you can almost feel like there's like a, a, a maybe like a shared origin, but throughout the different layers of the worlds, it's slightly, you know, it's like through the prism of the worlds, it's changed and sort of been distorted in a sort of way. Absolutely. And I kind of got that feeling with this. But you should definitely take out Talisman, and, though. The Talisman is fucking great. Yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I've got that written down. I'm going to add it to my list. Now, that's a great transition point to kind of associating bits and pieces of these first 10 chapters with other Stephen King's works and how they link in. Uh, yeah. One of the things you mentioned, and like now you got me, because th- Rachel was kind enough to generate a list for me of things that, <laughs> that go with this. I didn't really think about it until I saw Children of the Corn on here. Yeah. And, you know, you get that um, feeling with, like, a bit of the religiousness that's going on and the guy that's farming and that whole, like, feel of the, like, lone cabin out in just a cornfield. 
Mm-hmm. That that feels sort of like, you know, uh, the calling of the corn and the, you know, yeah. bring the brother to the corn and, you know, all the other scary things that. Uh, Outlander, we have your woman. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got some of these other ones in here. So let's discuss these. Start with the, the stand. Um, I didn't pick up on that as much other than the crow. Is that the only reference? So here's what I want to do. So one of the things that is so fun about Stephen King and actually now Joe Hill, his son as well, is that there is a ton of like crossover in the books. Like it actually, in some ways, all of his books are interconnected. And some of it's through like different dimensions and different worlds, whatever you want to call it. This story is actually central. This whole series is central to all of the Stephen King universe. So one of the fun things I was thinking I could do as we go through this is point out things that show up here that are connected to other books. And we're really early on, so we haven't gotten into, you know, a lot of them. But the one thing that is super uh, interconnected from this book is the character, character of the man in black. He is a character that shows up in various books. He has, he goes by different names. Some of them are like anagrams. Some of them are just based. You, you know, them based on description or by the use of the initials RH, which uh, or sorry, RF as in Randall flag. But in this book, he's known as Walter O'Dim. But Walter O'Dim is is Randall Flagg from The Stand. He is the the villain from Eyes of the Dragon. He's the villain from Hearts of Atlantis. And there's speculation that he's actually the man who walks behind the rose from Children of the Corn. Oh, really? Yes. So you can see how how like the interconnected universe works with with him as he's like um, he's one of the antagonists that show up in multiple books. Hmm. Yep. I'd cool stuff. This is the kind of stuff I super geek out on. And when I'm reading these books, I'm always looking for connections to the other books. Well, stay tuned for more of that because Rachel's way better at that than me. <laughs> I, um, my social cues are, are not as good. So that is that pretty much it for the uh, associations with other books then? Yeah, for this one, because we're just starting out. So, so far, that's kind of the most important thing. All right. Well, uh, that's it for the synopsis and the yeah. r- related Products. So let's, you want to talk to the movie? Go to the movies now. Uh, just one couple little things to. I just want to know what do you think so far as, as far as an opening? Oh, Pretty solid. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Um, I've gone through this book. I, I actually, before we started this cast, I talked with Rachel, and I, I've been. This is the second time I went through chapter one through ten twice because I was like, oh, "This is really good." <laughs> and then you know, I thought, "Well, this is silly that I'm going through it twice." But then I caught a bunch of. Uh, little subtle details that I missed the first couple times because when I don't know if you run into this, Rachel, but when you listen to a book and you only listen to it once, sometimes you're listening to the book and you're following along, but you go into this uh, almost daydream mode yeah, where you're paying attention to the story, but you're almost sort of only picking out the important points and you're almost like skewing yeah. it. So you're like, oh, you get distracted. And then you're yeah. attention. And then like when it's just describing the area or the the place or what's going on in a location and it's in between information, yeah, sometimes glaze over it and you'll be, you know, doing some other thing while you're listening to it. So for me, it, it helped a lot to to go through this twice. I I enjoyed it immensely. I'll probably listen to each of the chapters that we cover twice just so I can try to pick up as many of the little bits and pieces that I like as possible. 
And uh, if you're reading this, you know, don't be a fast reader. You know, read through this slowly because the descriptions themselves and a lot of this stuff uh, also make the scenes just interesting and yeah. amazing. Yep. Awesome world building. I'm uh, I'm listening and reading along at the same time. I'm doing like double because I want to make sure to pick up all everything I possibly can. And then the last thing I just wanted to, to mention, I think it's worthy of noting, like the opening line of this is pretty, I, I don't know. It's, it's super cool and kind of iconic. The what is it? The this is from memory, so I may get it slightly wrong. It's like the man in black fled across the desert and and Roland or the gunslinger followed something yes. like that. Just really cool and just sort of like immediately sort of pulls you into this this world, I think. Well, and there, I, I read an interview with Stephen King about this at some point, and I don't know where it came from, but he mentioned that for several years before he, he started this entire series that that one line sat on a piece of paper. Then no. He wrote, wrote it down. And that was it. He was like, this could be really interesting. And then he just didn't do anything with it. And it sat there for a long time. And as it sat there, he started to think about the ways that all of this comes together. And that's that line uh, was the resonant point that got him to uh, continue the entire book. So uh, it kind of it gives it a little bit of extra meaning in that uh, that was all he wrote to begin with. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. And I might be lying on that. You know, I think that's true, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've listened to so many interviews and, and read so much stuff that I could be incorrect. So if you want to fact yeah. check me on that, feel free. Prove it if you can. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so I think between let's uh, we're going to go into spoilers pretty quick here. So really quickly, let's talk about what plans for next week for people who don't want to stick around for spoilers. All right. So, Rachel, you want to do six or excuse me, 11 through 20 chapters next week? We're going to do chapter. It's still quote like technically chapter one, but we're going to do sections 11 through 20. Okay. And so in like and we're going to try to record again in two weeks. So you got two weeks to read through it a couple times. Um, The other thing I'm definitely going to check out is there is a poem that um, inspired some of this. Like it was something that kind of got. Uh, Stephen King thinking called like uh, to the dark tower, a ch- the child rolling something. So I'm going to, I'm going to read that. I'm going to know the name of it by next week. So those, that's, that's my homework. If you guys want to be on the same page as us. Oh yeah. I is, forgot about that poem. Yeah. So, and I've never read it despite knowing of its existence for, you know, two decades. <laughs> so <laughs> it, yeah. So I'm going to, th- that's our homework for the next, for the next show. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, you ready to move on to the spoilers? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so spoiler warning, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers for the movies and potentially for the books because, yeah, you'll see. (laughs) So if you don't want any spoilers for future books or the movie, get out of here. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. All right, now spoil it for me and tell me who they're going to have play the old and the young gunslinger. So they've cast Matthew McConaughey. Man in Black. And Idris Elba. Uh, Gunslinger. Obviously, Matthew McConaughey, he has the nose thing, right? Where it's like goes off to the side a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, that gives him like a either a super fun guy look or a super sinister look. And he yeah. feels like, uh, you know, the casting for The Stand. I don't know, remember what the name of the guy that played the, the fellow that yeah, you mentioned Yeah, the guy earlier. who played Randall Flagg. But Randall Flagg, <laughs> he had yeah. this beautiful politician smile that yes. was like staring in the eyes, 
creepy as hell look that really was amazing. And I could picture uh, Matthew McConaughey being able to pull that off in a manner that uh, uh, that no, not too many other people would. So hopefully that 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 sounds actually like good casting. Yeah, I I like I actually like uh, Matthew McConaughey the best when he's kind of being sinister. I hate him when he's being like Zoolander. sexy, charming guy. Ugh, I can't, I cannot. No, thank you. But when he, I I loved him in Frailty, and I loved him in True Detective. So I actually think this is pretty good casting. And then Idris Elba, I think is inspired casting i never would have thought of him because i think the archetype for roland is a clint eastwood type and you know clint eastwood's son is in a bunch of stuff right now it could be him or it could be it's been and in the past because this is actually the third time they've tried to adapt this in the past people connected to it were so russell crowe was attached at one point and then <laughs> Wait, javier bardem was a pro was attached at one point he's the i don't know if, did you ever see old no country for old men yeah. or the yeah he's like the villain he he wouldn't he's too serious like his face is too like uh, i I'm mean break this. i didn't hate it it was shortly after no country for old men and he's so scary in it i actually feel like he would have been a better man in black because he's think so, so so well because he's so creepy yeah but he's he does he's creepy without the charm you need true. You need a little That's bit true. of like uh, wacky hee hee in yeah, the creepy. You're right. you're at right. least for me, and maybe the stand has spoiled me, but I feel like a Stephen King villain needs to be able to like smile at you with the biggest, warmest smile ever and empty eyes. Yeah, and thinking about the scene where he resurrects Nort, and it, it's sort of almost like, like a song like and a- dance thing, you know? It's like doop doo doo, yeah. let's bring him back to life. Ha ha, guys, look at this! Everybody, he's like an fun. evil jester. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and imagine, yeah, okay. imagine him try uh, Russell Cro- or not Russell Crow. Um, uh, is it Alicio De- Del Toro? Is that the guy's name? Javier Bardem. Hav- Thank you. I-, I don't know where I'm going to this, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he's got like the the very jagged, pointed face. And, like, imagine a smile from him would be like imagining a smile from the Grinch. Like, it, yeah. it would curdle your stomach and, and, you know, make you spoil a good lunch as opposed to, like, bring <laughs> happiness or, like, a chuckle to your face. So Yeah. Actually, yeah, I think Matthew Connie is perfectly cast. And there's some, been some photos of them on set. I don't know if you got a chance to take a look at them. No, let me um, – I'm clicking on the link right now. All right. Okay. Uh, so I kind and I'm going to put these links in the show notes so that people can see what we're looking at because obviously, just hearing about it is not the best podcasting. But I do want to hear your reaction to sort of the how they look and, and do they are they living up kind of to what you imagine in your mind when you're when you're reading the book. Hmm. In I, terms I of don't like, know the, I'm looking at his his uh, wardrobe and it looks yeah it looks a little too brutal for me. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, brutal. The gun, because the gunslinger. I don't know. It's like it feels like uh, it's almost like you look at his this chest, and he's got like the straps across it, and he's like his gun in the back is more like I don't know. It looks like shoved full of ammo. I mean, I know the gunslinger has endless ammo, but I almost feel like the endless ammo is sort of a mystic choice as opposed to like. A realistic, you know, I carry like thousands of bullets with me. And I yeah. almost, uh, I don't know, I almost want uh, a cheesy um, Alamo style like bullet clip, 
you know, uh, cross vest <laughs> type of thing. If you're gonna if you're gonna go that route, but I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm being too picky here, and I'm just looking at no, the, I mean, the one set of pictures, and it, I don't see any Matthew McConaughey in here. So, yeah, you may have to go to the next one where he's kind of walking around town. Oh, okay. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I was hoping for like more browns and colors. Like he, you look at him, he's wearing almost all black too. You know? Yeah. Is that I mean, I I kind wrong? Of, Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, no. Your opinion is your opinion. I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I I I kind of feel con- somewhere in. I, I feel less turned off by it, but uh, than you are. Like I like that it looks weathered. I think it. It, it, the design is cool. The one thing I don't like is the vest because the vest almost feels sort of sci-fi post-apocalyptic yeah, exactly. to me as opposed to like I kind of imagined him being really straightforward Western style. So I'm not super into the vest, but I do like that it doesn't look clean. It looks nice and weathered. Um, I guess I very handsome. Maybe I'm just <laughs> imagining things, but I I sort of uh, visualize as the gunslinger like treks along that he's carrying like a leather, like a brown leather water satchel. And like, if he has a duster, his duster is more like Western and a little more like cow hide as opposed to like dark leather. And so because he's in almost all black and the man in black, I just looked at the Matthew McConaughey pictures and got hit with a flash ad, but uh, the, um, no, no, no problem. (laughs) But the, but the thing is, is they're both like, the attire is similar and and I know like there's some, there's probably some like commentary about the characters in, in that decision for wardrobe, but Mm. I almost want them to be like one guy is dark and the other guy is like mid colored to a lighter color, you know, like gray or tan. tan, Exactly. A little more sun bleached. Exactly. Like weathered and like worn and been out in the environment too much, you know, not, Mm -hmm. not like that almost feels like a Wesley Snipes outfit just before he rolls into like kill some vampires. Yeah. They do talk, they do describe his clothes in the book and they talk about it being like the color just sort of bleached out of places, especially where the holsters lay across yep. his, his, you know, or the ammunition belts lay across his, his, you know, pants or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, I feel I, I, I enjoy the casting. I'm less excited about the look of it, but obviously these are early days. We don't know ultimately, you know how it is. You, uh, you know, you make movies, you know how it is. Like it looks one way in person, then you put it on film and you're like, Oh, Movie magic. Yep. So Whoa. I need to see the final before I pass final judgment. But so far, I feel like eh, costumes are all right. What's the name of the video game where you are like a, a Western cowboy? Red Dead Redemption. Red Dead Redemption. Now imagine the guy on the cover, Red Dead Redemption, with like yeah. the guns and the like, you know, hat and all that stuff. Like when I picture the gunslinger, I almost want something more like that. Does that sound reasonable? And maybe no, that's just I mean, too stereotype. Is, like maybe that's well, just like. Well, I think that the guy from Red Dead Redemption is very much based on the same sort of spaghetti western look that Roland is based on, right? Because I think when Stephen King originally wrote the book, he imagined that you know, like it was sort of based off the the, the man with no name. And I completely the- forgot, but the Red Dead Redemption guy does have the bullet vest going all the way around. 
Mm. Oh, man. I'm looking at these pictures right now. That is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm just too, like, a Western style for my own. No, I mean, it's a Western horror fantasy series. So, yeah, I I, kind of wish they had gone that route with the the costuming on Idris. Although I still, I think he's going to be a really great Roland. Because not in this book so much, but later on, he kind of has to be... There has to be sort of this undercurrent of warmth in him, but like outwardly very stoic. Yeah. And I think I think Idris Elba can totally pull that off. Did you have you ever seen Luther, his show Luther? No. Ah, uh, oh. okay. Well, that's required viewing if you kind of want to get a hint of his range as an actor. He was great in The Wire, but Luther is ooh, it's so good. I never I never got into The Wire. I watched like three or four episodes and it was just like It is a punishing show. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it just gets too political drama for me and like I try to Avoid that in my life. It gets too stressful, you know. <laughs> but anyway, the environment's dying and everybody's evil. You know, like deal with it. Yeah. We're all rotten. Yeah. Yep. We're all fucked. <laughs> okay. So that that's one of the stories. Now this next one is much more. And I don't know if you noticed when you were looking at these the settings of where the filming is taking place. Well, it looked like it was in a city. If it's in, yeah, it's in New York. Is it all Which, in New York instead of... It's not all in New York. They did shoot some stuff in South Africa. So I'm guessing that's where we're going to get a lot of deserty stuff and maybe some some jungly stuff. But I don't know. It seems like you would... Oh, and this is going to spoil the book a little bit, but it seems like you're jumping very far ahead fast yeah. to go from you know the desert to the cityscape. Also, if you remember, like, Roland doesn't go to New York till like the later, later books. Yeah, like with, he doesn't even go to New York in the Drawing of Three. No, uh, even in the Drawing of Three, it's like the that's the whole train scenario, right? Or am I thinking incorrectly? No, that's that's Wastelands. Um, drawing of Three is when we meet Eddie and we get the second run in with Jake, oh, yeah. and we meet um, Odetta, Detta, who turns into Susanna. But even when he is like, quote unquote, in New York, he's actually taking over the bodies of Eddie yep. and Susanna. So he never physically goes to New York until I think like song of Susanna mm. or maybe even the dark tower. It's been so long. Those kind of, those ones kind of blend. So that leads me to the other piece of news that I want to get your feel, feedback on. So when the it was originally announced this time, because there's been various adaptations that at one point were going to be movies connected by TV shows mm-hmm. so that they could do everything. Uh, this new rewrite, uh, Stephen King originally described it as uh, starting in media res. So like in, you know, in the middle of the action, basically. Um, he's since kind of clarified with a, with a tweet, which I sent you a link to. Yeah, and again, I'll put this in the show notes as well as kind of <coughs> that. Now this is a huge spoiler. Definitely. If you're worried about spoilers, do not keep going here. The book ends in such a way as that you discover that Roland has actually been in this like cycle, caught in the cycle where he's repeated this over and over and over again. And the book ends with him basically being spit out of the Dark Tower at the beginning of the Gunslinger book again. Yep. Uh, Only this time he has with him the Horn of Eld, which is this magical horn that he lost at the Battle of Jericho Hill that is described in the fourth book. Um, And this book has – or this horn has – magical powers that I think is a necessary key in order for him to actually finally complete 
his mission, right? So this tweet, if you look at it, it's a picture that Stephen King tweeted of a horn sitting in like some dirt or some ash. And it says last time around. So what he's basically saying is this is not an adaptation of the books. But maybe a finishing? It's a sequel. Huh. This is the last time around. So he is completely unmoored from any plot points in the book. He can do it in any order he wants. He can he eliminate characters. I hope he doesn't meet himself. That's that's that was probably my long. thought when I saw this. I was like, oh, my God, they can fix the end. <laughs> they can fix all of the stupid meta stuff that I did not like in the books. And so I was very excited. But then when these cast, these photos came out and we're seeing Roland in New York, I'm personally getting a little worried because there are things that I really want to see. And I wanted to know what you thought. Well, I I didn't even think about this as a horn until uh, you told me. And then I'm like, what? Wait a minute. You know, the horn that he lost and left with his friend and, you know, and like. Yeah, the one that kills what Cuthbert. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it's like. You're like, really? Wait a minute. Can they do that? And then, you know, as soon as you you hear that, you start thinking like you just mentioned, the ramifications mean that basically you're not going to get half of the fun, cool, interesting stuff that you have. (sighs) I'm scared. Because now that gives them like creative license to just jump wherever they want. And, well, it's easier to shoot in New York. So let's just do this whole thing in New York. You know, maybe he's inhabiting another body or he's, you know, running around doing another thing, you know. So I, that's I don't know if I care, I care for that, but I I know I feel really like on one hand if it's a good if it's a good movie and a good story it doesn't matter ultimately, but I will there's a little part of me that's going to be sad if we don't see like the giant robot bear or like the mutants underneath the mountain yep. or or even just like the shootouts and stuff in the seventies with freaking Eddie I want to see like heroin Eddie like like blowing away a bunch of fucking drug dealing mafiosos like there are things that I want from the books that they now have this loophole where they can just skip right over it and so it's a bit of a mixed bag yes we don't have to see Stephen King hopefully the some of the stuff, the way the stuff is resolved with characters living and dying, which was such a fucking bummer in the last book. Well, we can reverse some of that. <laughs> <sighs> Come on. Like, viva oi. Oi cannot die. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I guess well, I'll, I'll go into the the movie with best expectations. And it's something that I'll yeah. watch simply because I like oh, yeah. work so much. But I, I hope this isn't like another Superman. Yeah. So we pretty much covered all the the movie related stuff, yep. correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted yeah. to just real quick one book to movie adaptation that bothers you, Rachel. Do, have you gone to that movie and you're oh, like, "What yeah. the hell did I just watch? This has nothing to do with the book, or it's like completely wrong, or they f stuff up, or they tried to condense it into something so small that it was ridiculous." Oh, it happens all the time, but there's one super egregious one, and it's going to show you exactly how trashy the the books I enjoy. <laughs> Have you ever read or seen uh, Timeline by Michael Crichton? Uh, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it or read it? Uh, I've I've listened to it. <laughs> Did you like it? Uh, Michael Crichton's a weird. Uh, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Guy for me, <laughs> so I can't say I like it. I can't say I don't like it. Uh, I, I listened to it. 
show. Okay, well, I really love it because it, it was like a mashup of of like you know, medieval adventure and then also like quantum entanglement and stuff. Which to me, I you're someone who's very like scientifically minded or mathematically minded, so that stuff yeah, but the makes sense that to, you. He... to me. It feels like magic. Oh. So the thing Michael Crichton I, does though, right. it, it, with all of his books, and like I don't know if you, uh, I forget what is global warming. That one, that was kind of one. it. Kind of ruined Michael Crichton for me. His his global, but like the global in the beginning one, with yeah. like his uh, Jurassic Park and stuff, you got this sort of like, oh yeah, here's some new genetic stuff, and I based an entire book around it, and like that yeah. was pretty cool. But with with timeline, it's more like. Um, you know, it almost feels like a bad quantum leap plot. Like, yeah, you know, that's fair. where it's like, <laughs> you know, you you could have done this in a way that made it, I don't know, to to science people a little bit more legit. Yeah. But instead, you mm-hmm. kind of just like went wackadoo and off the yeah. rails a little bit. Maybe I'm describing it wrong, but no, I think that's totally fair, and you're I I totally understand why your experience would be different because you're you know much more about. I haven't seen the movie though. Is the movie even wackier? The movie is unbearable. <laughs> it is so fucking bad. Uh, it, it like oh no, it is so it was so disappointing to me because I actually I like Jurassic Park because I don't totally understand the science behind it. Um, it just was a mashup of things I like, like medieval fantasy like crazy physics that I don't understand <laughs> and archaeology. Like these are all things that are really interesting to me. And like, there's sort of like a swashbuckly main female character who's like physically and, and mentally badass. And so I, I had a lot of fun with that and uh, learning about quantum foam. And then the movie comes along and it is just unbearable. Everything that I liked about the movie is ruined. And I w- that was a huge disappointment. So that, that's the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure there are more. How about you? Uh, What's so, your- so the one I got in mind, and this one is more fun than a science-y, but uh, have you ever read any of this series of unfortunate events? No, but I've seen the movie and it was not very good. Yeah, so this, <laughs> the series of unfortunate events is actually like – a 14 or 20 book series. Yeah. And it has the Harry Potter uh, syndrome where like each book gets a little bit fatter until you're finally reading like six and 700 page novels. Uh, right. About the right. Characters. And the, the plot is repetitious, but it consistently gets better and more interesting. And they start to develop like uh, these side characters and this whole overarching plot. That's very interesting. And like the lemony snicket, but then you go to see the movie and the movie is this ridiculous – we tried to cram the plot from every one of the books all together into one thing. But the only way the context, information, or uh, ending would make any sense to you is if you've read the entire books. And then you'd still be pissed off because you missed out on all of the the crazy awesomeness, like the Lickamore leeches and, and any of the other things that uh, uh, go along with it, the town of VFD. You, you're just really frustrated that like – what did you do to my movie? And and when I, <laughs> when I saw the casting, I was like, oh, you know, great choice. Like I I felt like they did a, a great job uh, uh, casting uh, the guy. Jim Carrey. Thank you. Uh, why I'm, Jim Carrey's escaping me. Casting Jim Carrey <laughs> as the bad guy because he plays it really well. But uh, he doesn't play it long enough and they don't give him enough time to breathe and they don't introduce all the rest of the things it should have been like three movies or four movies if nothing yeah. else we're gonna cram that stuff together 
Uh, it's making me nervous. As you're saying that, it's making me more and more nervous about yeah. the Dark Tower movie. And that was that was the Lemony Snicket problem that I was worried about yeah. with this is that what happens if they do some travesty like that uh, to this particular section? Now, last thing before we go, um, okay. we're both uh, uh, readers. Now, you mentioned s- science fiction. Is there a book you've read, Rachel, that – like you think like as you read it, like you're learning something about science while also getting entertained. Yeah. um, That would be Michael Crichton's timeline. (laughs) (laughs) What? All right. All right. Well, I've got one for you guys out there. If you, if you want to really cover the gamut of uh, sociology, psychology, uh, physics as well. And practical physics, not, uh, um, high in the sky quantum physics and theories in quantum physics because uh, the quantum foam is uh, only one of like four or five different competing quantum theories. Uh, but uh, Neil Stevens does an amazing job with science anytime he writes a book. And there, it's a huge book. It'll take you quite a while to get through, but it's called Seven Eves. And, Seven Eves. And this book is an epic read. Uh, I think it's a, around a thousand pages, and mm-hmm. it follows the course of the Earth through natural disaster, through sending people into space, through the follies of of early space travel, through. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil it too hard, but imagine what the words "soft cannibal" might mean to someone in space self-cannibalism yeah imagine like well you you don't need a leg to get around in space so why not just eat that leg i i don't have enough protein in my body you know that is a really dark interpretation of wally yeah and i mean it it continues on uh, through that to like uh terraforming and um recolonization and genetic uh, uh, breeding of, of human stock into the future and the results and issues with using a, a single gene strain to generate both a female and a male uh, component. And I mean, it just gets deep. It gets wow. super deep into the science. It's very good practical science. Uh, and he, he doesn't escape from basically using what is cutting edge uh, technology and science in present day as the basis for all of the scientific uh, happenings and uh, uh, forward events, and even some of the stuff going back to like uh, Dyson's uh, talks on like clusters and how spaceships and groups should travel and so on. Like, uh, holy shit! There's a lot of really good stuff in here. I mean, it's deep. It's going to beat you over the head with a lot of science, but. Man, it is it is a, a really good plot, really interesting. Takes you all over the place on roller coaster after roller coaster, and it does a great job with science. So Neil Stevens, right. Seven Eves, definitely my read this book. Uh, okay, and that's all I got, Rachel. Do you have anything? All else? right, I'm gonna watch seven. I'm gonna listen to Seven Eves. I'm gonna get it. I, I actually have a credit on Audible that I got. It's I'm burning a hole in my pocket, and you have to check out the Talisman. Okay, I'm the- I'm adding the Talisman. <laughs> I got, it. and it's like a thousand pages as well. You will learn nothing about science, <laughs> but it is very entertaining. <laughs> all right. On that note, Rachel, right. uh, where can Let's people find you? 
Uh, well, you can find me uh, on the Splattercast. You and I together on the Splattercast. Absolutely. You can also find me on various Zombie Girls Network podcasts, including the Zombie Girls proper, uh, Stream Queens, and now the cast of Call. And myself, guys, you can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com is my normal hosted website, as well as at DSLRFilmNoob on Twitter. You can swing over to the One Lone Dork channel on YouTube if you want to watch camera reviews. And, of course, Rachel and I always together on the Splatter cast and now this new cast. So I'm glad to be doing a solo show with you, Rachel. It's pretty fun to dig into something weird like this. Thanks for putting up with me, and thanks for finding the time to listen and to do these books. So, uh, guys, thanks for listening out there, and we'll see you next time on the next cast of Ka. All right, 20 All right. minutes in. We need to yeah, let's do it. get this thing right. rolling. In five, four, three, two. Hold on, I was just making sure we're recording. Oh. Yes, we're recording. <laughs> we're off to a good start.